0: and build a community together. And it, it was that sort of a thing that led to the connections that, um, that formed the Moisture Festival.
1: Human-animal connection, I think, is the core and, and understanding what animals need from humans and then going from there. There's
2: been some decisions, particularly by our city council, ...that have made things worse. Um, And I think we had, unfortunately, some self-inflicted wounds, some unforced errors.
3: That's Ron Bailey, Lucy Spellman, and John Scholes. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Ron Bailey is the founder of the Seattle Moisture Festival the most entertaining show in Seattle that you probably have never heard of. You'll hear me repeat that a couple of times. You'll probably get tired of it, but I do really believe it. Of course, like many other people, COVID, there were some major setbacks that were associated with the show, but they are rebounding, and they have a lot to look forward to. John Spellman was Washington State's governor, and he served between 1981 to 1985. He was the first King County commissioner, And I visited with him in his office in the late 1990s. It was from a segment I had called Profiles of Experience. I would like to replay that interview with you today. He talks about the political climate at the time and his projection for the future of Washington. Let's see how close he came. Dr. Lucy Spellman, the first woman and the youngest person to head the Smithsonian National Zoo, will be with us today. She brought two giant pandas into the U.S. from China. And she also worked as a consultant for Animal Planet before moving to Central Africa. John Scholes will also be with us. He is the CEO and Executive Director of the Downtown Seattle Association. He came into that position in 2014. He has seen a lot of ups and downs. And, of course, in the last couple of years, again, like many of us, there are more downs than ups. But what is the future of downtown? Is he optimistic? The election It's still too early to talk about the results right now. But next week, I will have pollster Stuart Elway on the air to talk about the breakdown and how the Seattle voters and King County voters really took to this uh, campaign and where the results are. So that will be next week with Stuart Elway. People with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, and entertainment with an emphasis on solopreneurship. That's what we talk about here You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Leave a message. And uh, please keep it short, and I will get it on the air. That's 425-653-1166. Nicholas Kristof, a columnist for the New York Times for many years, has signed off on his column to run for governor in his home state of Oregon. In his final column... This is what he had to say. I thought I would share them because they're quite upbeat. Historically, almost half of humans died in childhood. Now only 4% do. Another 170,000 people worldwide emerged from extreme poverty every year. Another 325,000 obtained electricity each day. And some 200,000 gained access to clean drinking water. Back with my interview with Ron Bailey in just a moment.
4: When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you, and that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is Uh, simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit voices of and take a five minute self employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's voices of Ron
3: Bailey is my guest, and Ron is the founder of of Seattle's Moisture Festival, and I say this in the interview, but I'll say it before uh, that I had with um, Ron, is that I believe the Seattle Moisture Festival is the greatest event in this locality that you may have never heard of. So let's pick up the interview I had with Ron Bailey earlier this week.
0: So, Paul, let me just give you like a, a little backstory of, of where where I came from and how the thing evolved. So my father was in the service, and as a kid, I, I liked to play in the dirt. He always ended up staying in Army housing, and all the kids would have to get to know each other every time they were moved from place to place, and then they would find a little gathering spot that was usually around a little patch of dirt. First, it was just a couple of boys, and then it was, you know, we'd play in marbles, and marbles. But that little gang would always find each other and, and have fun together. It seemed like every place I, I was, I ended up at the University of Oklahoma. I got together with a bunch of other guys playing in rock bands. And when I got to Seattle, my little patch of dirt was the Pike Place Market and... Uh, Fremont University District, Pioneer Square. And I would always get together with people who liked to have fun together, create together, and build a community together. And it, it was that sort of a thing that led to the connections that um, that formed the Moisture Festival. I ended up playing the street at the Place Market, and it was three guys and three girls, three very talented women, Played saxophone, flute, and 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 the guys were rock and roll guys, and uh, we were a little different because we did theater with with the street performing, and that took us down to the Oregon Country Fair where we played the paths down there, and ended up getting our our own little stage down there, and we met people like the Flying Karamazov Brothers and uh, Henrik a uh, juggler from Denmark, and, and all of these vaudeville performers. And, of course, Fremont was a very fun, creative district, and some of the people from Fremont went to the Oregon Country Fair and also loved the vaudeville variety down there. And uh, Mac DeVee was one of the Fremont uh, movers and shakers. And so he and I were talking, why don't we bring this kind of vaudeville variety to Seattle? But we didn't know how it would work, and then I ended up going to Berlin for a variety festival run by a clown named Hockey Ginda. And it was in, right in the center the old part of Berlin with tents and a theater and little clubs where they did variety. and uh, And I realized, okay, this is the model. This is the model. Do a festival of the variety arts, so I came back to Seattle and, and talked to Mac and talked to Tim first, who was a flying Karamazov brother. And uh, we put together a little team and we did the first festival in 2004. So that's the crazy path that led to this Variety Arts Festival that had been going 16 years until the pandemic uh, shut us down. And now we're trying to come back to life.
3: So when you look at the COVID uh pandemic that came and, and shut the festival down, it seemed to me that you really rebounded quite well and, and did a lot with a little. So was there any good news that resulted from uh let's say COVID hitting and then you found out that you could actually explore more
0: avenues? Well, we we determined very quickly what was the bottom line, what would we what was the money we would have to raise to keep our very small staff going. To do that, we had to do a a quick fundraising campaign, which, of course, most nonprofits had to do. And luckily, we had built up a good uh, amount of audience who loved the festival. And so they came through with donations that basically covered the cost to just keep it alive. We started doing um, online shows, and we had fun with that. We learned a lot. By doing online shows, and we'll probably continue because, of course, it lets you reach the world, and that's what led us to do this auction, which is going to be streamed live from Hales Palladium. Yeah, and that's so coming up um, actually this
3: uh, Sunday, correct? November seventh.
0: Yes, November seventh, and of course, it's an auction. There's been a. Uh, it's open now. The, the silent auction is open now. You can go to our website and sign up and uh, we have a, a bunch of really lovely things donated by our community and then on on the 7th where we're in the palladium we have some uh, acts you know, as part of the show and then kevin joyce is being our streaming
3: auctioneer and then the virtual event comes on november 7th uh, as well and that's uh, seven o'clock p.m seven o'clock p.m yes how do you describe when you're talking to someone for the first time about what this is all about. I think it's like the best show in the Seattle area that most people don't know about.
0: <laughs> well, that, that that could be true. That could be true. Um, it It is, in the truest sense, variety performance. Um, and to give you an example, it, it goes all the way from... Jugglers, which most people would imagine, of course, it would include jugglers, but it's also some of the most beautiful aerial artists. And then we've also we had a guy from New Zealand called Rubber Band Boy, and and he, his act was uh, putting hundreds of rubber bands around his face. And of course, it became uh, more and more hilarious as it distorted his face. And you you discover all of these people who develop talents, and some of them are quite bizarre, but they're very dedicated to developing those talents, um, so there's very bizarre acts. There's also, we have opera singers, we have uh, great magicians, really good magicians, and what makes it even more uh, spectacular is that uh, in both of the theaters we do this in, which is Hale's Palladium and then Broadway Performance Hall, there's only like 200 people in the room. And uh, everyone has a, a good view of the stage, so it's an intimate um, setting, um, and so that makes that kind of uh, performance it hits you really well. You can the audience is laughing together, they're cheering together, they're drinking a beer, they're sitting having popcorn with their kids. So it's it's the it's very strange and very skilled acts. They're just a lot of fun, and um, it's a room full of of people enjoying them. Yeah, I
3: would say the discipline of the performers that I've seen over the years, that is just remarkable. I mean, to whatever they're doing, uh, you said it earlier, (laughs) and I second it, it's um, the practice that they have to go through these routines is nothing short of remarkable. Absolutely. So you're hoping Um, to come back on March 7th to April 10th live at Hale's Palladium. March
0: seventeenth. Excuse St. me. St. Patty's Day. March seventeenth. Yeah, March seventeenth.
3: Okay, to April tenth. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Okay, yes. so
3: and that would be again live at Hale's Palladium in uh brewery in Fremont. What does your gut tell you? Do you think it's going to be uh coming back?
0: Well, you know, I'm I'm an eternal optimist and so I'm uh, and I put a lot of, of faith in, in the people of Seattle to uh you know, follow the guidelines and try to keep their families safe. And so, uh, I'm sure that whatever decision needs to be made in early spring, that we'll make the right decision. But I'm um, I'm very hopeful that that we can all gather in that uh, little brewery there and have some fun together because that's also important, especially for families. And um, so, I'm very optimistic that we can do it in 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 March.
3: Well, thank you, Ron. That's Ron Bailey, and he is the founder of the Seattle Moisture Festival. And if you would like to find out more about the Seattle Moisture Festival, all you need to do is input moisturefestival.org or moisturefestival.com. It will get you to the right page. And just a couple of reminders, there is a silent auction going on right now, And that will last till this Sunday, November 7th. You can find your pathway to the auction by, again, inputting MoistureFestival.org or .com. And then on Sunday, there's going to be a virtual event. It starts at 7 p.m. and then that, again, is Sunday, November 7th. And mark this down, hopefully this will happen, that the live performances will come back to Fremont on March 17th and run through April 10th. 2022, and that's at Hale's Palladium Brewery in Fremont. I had a segment on Voices of Experience 25 years ago called Profiles of Experience that was sponsored then by U.S. West. Remember U.S. West. I interviewed John Spellman, who served as Washington's governor from 1981 to 1985. I spoke with him about the current state of affairs in Washington and in the country. While he was generally optimistic about the country at the time, he did express concerns about divisiveness that was creeping into the political landscape in Washington. He said that there was very little respect for another point of view, and it's hard to build a consensus in politics today. Now remember, this was 25 years ago. Governor Spellman governed in a time of recession. He said that on the plus side of a recession, it forces government to become more efficient. One of the big issues during his tenure as governor was the construction of the Northern Tier Pipeline and the Cherry Point Project, which we do talk about in this interview. Now, if you've been a KC listener for a long time, you may recognize the golden voice of Jim Day during this interview. Jim was producer of Profiles of Experience at the time.
5: John Spellman has been retired from public life for 10 years. His elected positions included King County Commissioner, the first King County Executive in history, and Governor of the State of Washington from 1981 to 1985. Governor Spellman is a partner in the law firm of Kearney, Badley, Smith & Spellman, located in the Columbia Center in downtown Seattle. I recently asked him for his observations on the current state of affairs and to reflect on his public life. My first question, how did you become interested in public life?
6: Oh, I think it was by observing. Uh, certainly as a young person, we depended on radio and we used to listen to it Before television, I remember listening to the politicians and the political uh, uh, debates and the national conventions, and then I went to law school back in Washington, D.C. on the G.I. Bill, and I saw the Congress and the Senate in action and all the activity, everything from the firing of MacArthur to the Truman seizing the steel mills, and I I think that engendered a lot of interest that when I came back to Seattle after law school, uh, got me involved in community activities, you know, various boards and commissions, community club and so forth. It was a natural evolution.
5: Was there any public figure that stands out in your mind that had major influence on you? Oh, so many.
6: <laughs> you know, so many. It would it would be hard to pick one out. I, I, Eisenhower, I certainly admired and, and I was back in uh, the school when Eisenhower was elected. And I think he was a uh, most admirable and a, and, and a wonderful president who in the long run will be Properly judged.
5: Politics was obviously a different time than in the 1950s. My next question, Governor, would be Has politics changed since you were governor? And if so, how?
6: It has, as society has. And see that see, in politics, uh, very little respect for one another. Uh, it is hard to build a consensus under those circumstances. Everybody believes they have a mandate of their own. They don't represent their party as such. They all have personal agendas, and uh, the leaders of the legislative branches and Congress have a terrible time trying to get a consensus, so you end up with this kind of gridlock or or watered-down legislation. I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, say, it, it is appearing throughout society, but it, it reaches a crescendo in, in our legislative body.
5: What do you consider your greatest achievement in, as being governor of the state of Washington?
6: Well, I su- suspect, I, I look back, and I think it was doing a really tough job in terrible times but the the, the best part of that was that uh, we had to prioritize and I think it's very important that government every so often have to prioritize for example in all of the programs in uh, the department of social and health services we had to prioritize each one with the help of the community and with the help of the advocacy groups decide which ones were the most important which had to be funded at what level, and on down the line to those that are nice, but we can't afford them. I think that was a, a really good exercise. It probably uh, not only made the department efficient and people understand it, but it allowed the state to save some money. It probably should go through that process again. Uh, and I would add on to that that probably the really true methods such as that to keep the life net in place and keep education in place during really tough times. Uh, while not glamorous, it was probably the most important thing I did.
5: So in some ways, going through lean times on an ongoing basis sometimes uh, would be maybe more preferable.
6: Well, it's not fun to be there, but what you do is very important, and you're do have it. Uh, you forced to make decisions that you don't make in fat times. And those decisions frequently result in, in a more efficient uh, government and getting rid of a lot of programs that have built up over the years.
5: Along those lines, what memory sticks out in your mind that would best define John Spellman as governor?
6: Well, I, that's a really hard one. I, I guess it would probably involve the Northern Tier Pipeline and the Ch- Cherry Point flo- floating dry dock projects. Uh, both were had a tremendous amount of public support. Uh, the administration in Washington, D.C., uh, Various groups really thought Northern Tier was the greatest thing that was going to happen, and I was the pipeline across Puget Sound running all the way back to the mid- Midwest. Uh, and after studying it a long time, I felt the environmental risks were much too great, and, and the uh, carrot being held out was a very elusive carrot. really wondered if it would ever get built properly and whether it would be any economic impact. Following on the heels of that, we had Cherry Point, which was up around Bellingham, and... Uh, uh, was to be building in that area and was to scoop out some tidelands and build these floating dry docks. Uh, and everybody kind of assumed, uh, the media and everybody, that I was going to go along with that because I had uh, come out against in, uh, Northern Tier. Uh, I remember late at night thinking, well, could I look my kids in the face if I let that project go ahead? And decided, no, I really couldn't. So I, I also killed Cherry Point. And I must say that uh, in recent years, I've run into some fish biologists and all who say they think that was the most important thing I did at the time. It was a a tough call, but I felt very good about both of them.
5: Well, you certainly don't see a lot of people demonstrating in downtown Seattle or anywhere else saying, boy, we want Cherry Point. No, no,
6: you don't. Not now. At the time, though, jobs, uh, you know, we had a tough economy, and both Northern Tier and Cherry Point promised a lot of jobs in construction but we would have paid a he- very heavy price
5: with them. Today we join Paul as he revisits with former Governor John Spellman, and he asked the former governor what was his biggest regret as governor of Washington.
6: Certainly I would have loved to have been governor in good times, uh, when there was money and when you didn't have to make those tough decisions, when well, you didn't have to cut, or well, you didn't even have we had to raise taxes. and That's something you hate to do, but uh, you've got to keep the services and the education in place. Uh, that certainly was my biggest disappointment. Overshadows uh, overshadows everything else. What other careers
5: did you consider, other than public life and law?
6: Well, again, you got to remember, I was a product of the World War II era. And I served and I came out. Uh, peace, peace had been uh, achieved. I was in San Francisco in uniform when uh, the United Nations was being first set up. And uh, that brought a certain idealism. And the idealism was to encourage uh, peace among the world not have more wars uh, and peace among people so my the things I looked at were the Foreign Service you know to work in the uh, United for the United States to try to achieve world peace uh, I looked at the clergy as a way of trying to uh, I men I actually spent a little time uh, studying there as a way of uh, dealing with people's problems and I looked at teaching in the same vein I finally decided that to be effective in a couple of those roles at least a law degree wouldn't hurt a bit In that frequently you had more uh, influence when you came in not at the bottom rung of the state department or wherever but to come in with a a reputation and so i did that with the the thought that it left me the uh options of being in, in public service one way or the other or being in It came out of the period that we were in, and it came out of a desire to solve problems and achieve peace and all those things.
5: Are you optimistic about the future of Washington State and the United
6: States? Yes, I'm I'm extremely optimistic. Large uh, the people, you know, that would make the difference. I teach a class one night a week of of young people who work all day and then come to school at night, and uh, I've been doing that for some time. Those young people and those young families uh, are, are so good, you can't help but have optimism about the future
3: of the country. That's former Governor John Spellman, who served as Governor of Washington from 1981 to 1985. Governor Spellman was born on December 29, 1926, and he passed away on January 16, 2018. On a personal note, I recall observing Governor Spellman at a distance when he was governor. He came across to me, and I think others, as being aloof and kind of stiff on television. After I met him for this interview and another one during that time frame, I found Governor Spellman to be one of the warmest and most delightful individuals I have ever met. Dr. Lucy Spellman is a board-certified zoo and wildlife veterinarian with degrees from Brown University and the University of California at Davis. During her tenure as the first woman and youngest person to head the Smithsonian National Zoo, she brought two giant pandas into the U.S. from China. She worked as a consultant for Animal Planet before moving to Central Africa to run the field program for the gorilla doctors. There's so much more to her background. You'll find out more about that as we go through the interview. Let's just get right to it, my interview with Dr. Lucy Spellman. You obviously had a love for animals, but when did that turn into your life's vocation? What point were you at when you said, this is what I want to do?
1: That's that's a good question. I mean, I, I, always, I always wanted to work with animals, and then I, I wanted to take care of them. I think that started, you know, we had some pets when I was growing up, and um, my aunt was a human doctor, and I just got it in my head that, I was gonna be an animal doctor and for all animals and I mean I was pretty young, maybe ten or eleven, and that that's that's many, many years ago now. And I think that's that wiring to do this work is pretty similar. Most veterinarians, no matter what the species they work with, kinda of were wired that way and it kind of is this focus and it helps because it's a long it's a lot of training to get to through veterinary school and in my case, you know, many more years to be a specialist in zoological medicine. I mean, it's an amazing job, and I love it. Um, and I think you kind of have to be wired for it to, to do it. So, yeah, everything since I can remember is really the short answer. <laughs> yeah,
3: what's interesting is I just spent the last weekend with um, a former veterinarian and graduated from Washington State University. He's 89 years old, and uh, he's very much involved in what's called the Doney Pet Clinic out here. He started along with this gentleman by the name of Doney, it's a uh, veterinarian service that's free to low-income and homeless. As a matter of fact, my wife now is the president of that organization. But the reason I mentioned that is that when I was talking to Stan Coe, and that's his name, we were talking about back when he was going to vet school and what it is like now, but he recalls then with in mind is that he would be taking uh, care of farm animals more, and that was more of the mission Back at that time when people went to vet school, and certainly now it's changed into a whole other area where well, obviously pets and things like that are the main focus. Have you seen that development?
1: Yes, that's a really that's a really great observation how um, I mean that's sort of how our society has changed right so from utilitarian uh, farming, which is still a big part of veterinary medicine, to then companion animals and you know, uh, animals are big parts of our lives. Um, and then and then looking at human impacts on animals, and that's where, you know, endangered species work, conservation medicine, um, zoological medicine. And, and I think that sort of the dominance of the human species, seeing that um, to maintain this diversity of life on Earth, uh, there, there's a role for the veterinarian because it's, it's really about health. I mean, sometimes I define conservation as preventive medicine for the planet, right, if we if we save habitats and species, we're, we're, we're really preventing problems that then have a ripple effect and will affect us. So, yeah, I think that understanding of veterinarians is being, I mean, I can't do my job without the people who let me know their animal's in trouble or are monitoring the animal in the wild. You know, I've worked both in zoos and in private practice and in, in the wild with mountain goats, for example, otters. And so that human-animal connection, I think, is, the core and and understanding what animals need from humans, and then going from there, and then that's something that that's get really good at doing. And I think in public health now, increasingly, you know, with this whole last two years, the role of uh, you know infectious diseases and how they where they come from and human animal connections. I think, yeah, I think it's changing and in, in in a good way. I think um, we have a lot to contribute, but I also think. It's complicated, <laughs> and it's not simple. And there's still a lot that we that we need to understand in order to do to manage those interactions in a healthy way.
3: As you mentioned, the animal kingdom, whether it's pets or truly animals out in the jungle, we can learn so much about infectious diseases and things like that that occur, and that is critical to our future as a human beings it, continuing to exist. I guess. I mean, how important is that?
1: I think feeling connected to nature and appreciating it and celebrating it and then understanding it, I think it has to be both of those, right? Because the, and it, and the understanding can be the science part, but it can also be just the, the role that animals play in our lives and being open to the fact that you know, we are the dominant animal and all animals need air, food, water, shelter, each other, and uh, room to move. And that if we want to have a diverse planet, as humans decide where the resources go, both for us, you know we other humans and and um, the rest of the animal world, that's the good part is like we we have caused problems for animals by taking away their habitats, for example, but we also can solve that. We just have to not only want to do that, but we have to structure those solutions so that they benefit the people in the community where the animal is, and,
3: and, you know, that it is all connected. You uh, authored a book, National Geographic's Animal Encyclopedia. Over 2,500 animals appear in this book. Pretty remarkable uh, display. I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, looking at it, what is your takeaway in putting something like this together on such a scale? I've never seen anything on such a scale before. What do you take away when you look at what you've done as far as the type of animals, how they interact? Is something that jumped out in, at you when you were putting this all together?
1: Yeah, so the, 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 the National Geographic Kids uh, Animal Encyclopedia, but I think what I love most about it is it's just a beautiful book. And the photos, you know, there's a thousand photos in it. And they kind of structure the book and help you get through, you know, go through from one animal group to the next. They help you see... Um, how animals communicate, you know, there's some fun facts. But I think the photos are, You know, that's the first thing you notice, and then you start going into the text. And I think, again, that the photos are the artistry of the book, and the book is designed and, in and such a very, it's so appealing, the colors. And for me, as a scientist, you know, I wrote the entries sort of in response to the photo layout once we decided which animals went in, in each section. And it is an encyclopedia, so it's like a collection of animals that go through, you know, birds, mammals, reptiles, etc., and I really enjoyed writing the text sort of in response to the photos, and because many of the animals are ones that I've touched or worked on as a patient or I've seen very close in the wild, and so I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, artistry and storytelling in the book that makes it special, as well as just the volume of information, It's and, and all of that information is it's so you can't really even count all the people who contributed because it's all the information we have about the animal world that's been published or shared and you know we drew on all of what we could find to to put the descriptions in and the facts and uh, and I think it's you know it's meant to be fun uh and inspirational, but it's also very informative and you know that's really what my work in the last couple of years has been all about is just combining that idea of celebrating and studying as our motivation to then protecting. And so the book, I think, is is basically doing that for little kids. And, um, and it's also a pretty great book to look at if you're the adult in the room because it's, there's a lot to read, and it's, it's also very fun to see where kids go. You know, they page through it, and all of a sudden they're on a the salamander page or they're looking at the butterflies or they didn't realize that there were small cats, you know, like the lynx, or they only knew about tigers. So it's it's got a lot to discover. And I think it's it's the first step in in balancing those interactions, right? Is really appreciating the otherness of the world and, and having empathy for other creatures as well as other people. And I think the book has a big has a role to play there for sure.
3: That's Dr. Lucy Spellman. And we just talked about her book, The National Geographic Animals Encyclopedia. And again, it is by Dr. Lucy Spellman. And it has all these photos and maps, about 2,500 animals from the world's tallest to the longest to the strangest. The book is designed for kids, but I think anybody from any age could enjoy this. That's National Geographic Animal Encyclopedia, and you can just go to the usual book outlets to order your own copy, or you can just Google Dr. Lucy Spellman, and that's... Dr. Lucy Spellman, and Spellman is S-P-E-L-M-A-N, dash books. So Dr. Lucy Spellman books, and you'll come up on her page, and you'll find a copy of this book and others she's written. I will say, once again, I'm not paid a promotional fee for doing these interviews, but I did receive a complimentary copy of the book in advance of this interview.
1: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
3: John Scholz is my guest, and he became president and CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association in November of 2014, following six years as the organization's vice president of advocacy. Now, the Downtown Seattle Association's goals are to put a healthy, vibrant, and inviting downtown. That certainly has been a big challenge over the last couple of years. John does live in downtown Seattle with his wife and twins. He is a graduate of of the University of Washington, my first question and observation to John is: It just must be incredibly challenging to be in your position over the last couple of
2: years. Well, no, it's definitely been you know a challenging time um, leading an organization that's really you know focused on creating a healthy, vibrant downtown when you've got such strong headwinds, certainly from the pandemic and the economic impacts from the pandemic and. And then the, all, all the uncertainty that came with it of, you know, when, when do we move from phase one to phase two? When are we reopening? When can, you know, X, Y, and Z happen? And then, unfortunately, I think for a good, you know, portion of our time battling this public health crisis, we haven't had the, the strongest partnership with some aspects of city government. There's been some decision particularly by our city council that have made things worse. Um, and I think we had, unfortunately, some, you know, self-inflicted wounds, some unforced errors in uh, the management of certainly community safety and the response to homelessness and the police department that made a, a challenging situation uh, that much worse. But in a lot of ways, I think we're starting to turn a corner downtown. We saw that over the summer with this real strong rebound in the residential population, leisure travelers, locals coming back, renew and reopen and, uh, and attract visitors and meeting the conventions and employers and, and workers and residents. So take nothing for granted. And I think the partnership between the business community, the private sector and city government is going to be really critical to the renewal and recovery of downtown have you seen an uptick in the amount of people and let's say
3: businesses
2: or people coming in for conventions? Are they starting to rebook? And Yeah, we are certainly moving in the right direction. We had our first convention in uh, you know a year and a half uh, over Labor Day downtown, um, about 17,000 people for a gaming convention. And we've had a few since then and a few more that'll take place before the end of the year. Uh, and then a number on the books for 2022. And then we've got a new convention facility that will open next September which is going to be you know a top uh event space in the country that uh, that will draw uh associations and trade groups here to Seattle. So I think the future is bright on our you know meeting and convention um prospects. Seattle's always been a top destination, increasingly so in recent years, and with the new facility, I think, you know, e- even more so. Uh and then um We've had a number of our you know, arts and cultural venues that have been able to open their doors over the last couple of months, you know, live music venues, uh, and then get a lot more on the books, um, more performances scheduled, so we're really picking up pace there. There's just a lot more. Uh, when you look at the event landscape, entertainment and sports uh, happening downtown, certainly the opening of Climate Pledge, uh, the crack and drop in the puck, and the concerts and other events that'll take place there is a big part of that, so... Uh, That's been the story this fall, and then as we look to the new year, we'll see some additional venues that aren't open today, like the Fifth Avenue Theater. Public safety is
3: obviously the biggest issue on most people's minds, including myself, and um, I'd go downtown all the time, not even think twice about it. Not totally, but nonetheless, I just felt safe. I don't feel that way now, and I know a lot of other people don't. Is there a reason for us to be optimistic, though, that if we went downtown now or as we go forward that public safety is getting better we just hear the chirping back and forth and it seems to me so many different agendas now about just staying safe or crying out loud or you know a business not being um robbed and uh no prosecution things like that it just seems like it's kind of a the old west way of uh doing business
2: yeah and cities have never really worked well if they don't first um, feel and are safe and desirable and and people can feel, you know, safe and healthy to be there. So whether it's from, you know, pollution or from, you know, cholera and communicable diseases or a pandemic or uh, safety and security issues, um, you've got to be a place that where everybody feels like they are safe and, and healthy. And I think right now there's really sort of two truths in downtown Seattle. One, You can come down. You can have a phenomenal experience, like so many were yesterday. The sun's out. You're going to the Seahawks game or the Kraken game, or you're at the market or on the waterfront, and it's just a delightful, you know, urban, you know, big city experience. Uh, And then the other truth is, we do have a a crisis around untreated mental illness and substance use, uh, and in certain areas of town, you know, organized drug trafficking and shoplifting. Now, that's not in every block. That's not in every street. But there are parts of downtown where that activity. Uh, has taken hold um, and it creates health and safety issues uh, for folks who live and work and visit downtown as well as for a population of folks who are unsheltered living on the street that sort of get caught up in this mess each and every day. And we haven't done enough as a city to have a real clear uh, strategy to address those issues. We haven't resourced them enough. We don't have clear plans and metrics. And I think a lot of the decisions that have been made by uh, city uh, government, the city council in particular, has have made those issues worse. We, you know, had 300 Seattle police officers that left the force over the last year and a half or so. We haven't had a coherent strategy around homelessness. We're not investing enough in treatment.
3: Six years ago, the city council declared homelessness an emergency, and the problem has only gotten worse over the times. And sometimes, I think the perception that we have maybe out looking in is that there are just way too many people involved in this too many nonprofits too many agencies and there's a lot of money involved not coordinated just as you said and then there's a lot of people making money on this and we don't really have that focus what you talked about
2: yeah i would agree i think our you know we haven't had a coherent strategy certainly not for downtown or the the entire city um There's dozens and dozens of contracts and approaches, and there's bickering and arguing over the right one, and uh, what type of housing is better, and what type of program. Uh, And I think in many ways, that's why we find ourselves in a situation where we're spending more today, and we arguably have more people outside suffering. Mm -hmm. I, I do have some optimism in the new regional homelessness authority that has been created that really centralizes responsibility and planning and management uh, and the operations uh, for our homeless services within, you know, one entity uh, that ultimately has responsibility uh, for uh, bringing more people inside. And we've had really productive and constructive conversations with their new CEO about a plan for downtown and which we've never had before, a a clear, coherent strategy for the population of folks who are unsheltered on the streets of the greater downtown. For the 150 or so folks who are dealing with really severe behavioral health issues, mental health and substance use, to make sure we have the right type of housing and services for those individuals, because just simply offering them a, a mat on the floor at a shelter uh, that they need to you know be out of the next morning and then they're back on the street that's not been an effective strategy we need much more intensive services and support for those individuals uh, that there's fewer people outside um, than there were last month or the week before and that we can maintain those results um, and that this isn't an effort that comes in and uh, and then and then vanishes which is what a lot of our i think previous you know initiatives and efforts have been of this you know let's let's get after it but then we we, we let up um, that that's not going to work. We need to make sure that the the services, the outreach workers, the available housing units are are there uh, as folks show up homeless downtown. That we meet you and we don't let you sort of become and then stay homeless for many years in downtown and, and suffer and create impacts. Um, we 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 need to get to sort of functional zero when it comes to homelessness uh, in downtown Seattle. So. I'm frustrated as anybody with where we've been, but I have some optimism about um, the potential path ahead here. Well, good to hear,
3: because uh, I don't believe, as you alluded to, is that we're not doing them any favor by letting them roam on the streets in their current situation. It's not a compassionate thing to do. Let's put it that way. And this is what I really bothers me so much is I, when you drive down and see these tents and you go, hey, they should go where they want to go, this is not doing anything good for them. They're in a bad state. No, not
2: at all. The the mortality um, for someone who's chronically homeless in King County is 15 times the the general population. The the chance of them interacting with the criminal justice system and being involved uh, with the jail system is 45 times the general population. Uh, and uh, majority of the folks that are homeless downtown have been homeless for two or more years. And uh, the the People of color uh, are overrepresented in the unsheltered population downtown. So this is wrong for so many reasons, and we've got to do better for them and for the downtown neighborhood.
3: My thanks to John Scholz, president and CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association.
4: There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Haniger Or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Haniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Venture. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 PM. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 AM. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a 5 minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com.
3: Well, that's it for today. My name is Paul Casey, your host of Voices of Experience. My thanks to Seattle Moisture Festival founder, Ron Bailey, former Washington State Governor, John Spellman. I thought he was very close and projecting how Washington State would look today. And the other Spellman, Lucy Spellman, no relationship to uh, the former governor, but really enjoyed having her today. And finally, to Downtown Seattle Association Executive Director, John Scholes. For all of them sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Next week, pollster Stu Elway will provide us with an update and an analysis. What can we interpret from what the voters had to say? Voices of Experience a simulcast on KIXI AM 880 and KKNW AM 1150 on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m. And then rebroadcast broadcast on Sundays on KIXI at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today? Call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Keep your comments short so I can get them on the air. That's 425-653-1166. What is Voices of Experience all about? People with experience in their field like public affairs, travel, fitness, education, adventure, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And what drives this show? My belief is that experience as our best coach. Reigniting You with Lisa Downs airs on Monday afternoons at 3 o'clock p.m. right here on Kixie. If you are looking to make a career move and you're an older adult, you really want to listen to this show because she'll really talk to you about the options you have before you. And you have a lot more than you really think you may have. I mean, you may consider retiring, semi-retiring, or making a move in a traditional job or, or finding something a little bit off the beaten path. Again, that's Lisa Downs with Reigniting You that airs 3 o'clock p.m. on Monday afternoons. Ready or not, the holidays are here, and Holiday Portraits 2021 can be had at the Family Dog Training Center with Jerry and Lois Photography. The dates are November 26th to the 28th, and the location is in Kent at 1509 Central Avenue South, You can get your portraits taken with your pets. I've seen their work. It is incredible. Animals and humans are welcome for appointments starting at 8.45 a.m. COVID protocols are in place. To find out more, go to FamilyDogOnline.com. That's FamilyDogOnline.com. Quote of the Week. Judgments in history seldom coincide with the tempers of the moment. Adley E. Stevenson. Wes Ullman was the 47th mayor of Seattle. He was elected in 1969 and served two terms. He is probably best known for his efforts in saving Seattle's Pike Place Market, which was targeted for destruction by developers who were going to turn it into a condo and parking lot. I think we can all agree that that was not a very good move, and we are certainly glad the market is still there. Victor Steinbrook led a successful petition drive that saved the market, which had the support of Mayor Ullman. Other monumental events that occurred under his watch, construction of the long-gone kingdom, along with the birth of the Seattle Mariners and the Seattle Seahawks. He is most proud of the revitalization of Pioneer Square, which was also slated to be pretty much demolished during that time frame. He talks about this during the interview. Mayor Ullman also survived a recall effort in 1975, which was defeated by a large margin. My interview with former Seattle Mayor Wes Ullman from 25
5: years ago. Paul Casey had a chance to chat with a former Seattle Mayor Wes Ullman. I asked former Mayor Wes Ullman, what was his fondest memories in government?
7: Uh, well, I, I think that uh, when really pushed to the wall, it would be uh, walking down uh, through Pioneer Square and realizing that uh, we wouldn't have Pioneer Square if, uh, if I hadn't really become very personally involved and and, and really gotten uh, into the issue of whether or not we're going to preserve our, our birthplace there.
5: What position in government did you enjoy the most?
7: Uh, well, actually, you know, I, I served in in the state house. I served in the state senate, and then as mayor, and. Uh, I would have to honestly say that the mayor is the most rewarding uh, uh, job that you can have in politics, better than Congress or the United States Senate or Governor, I think, because uh, I was just having lunch a couple of days ago with the mayor of Bellingham. We were talking about uh, the job of of mayor, and you actually get to see what comes out of the pipeline and how it affects people directly. You don't um, uh, have to just vote on the appropriations and then kind of hope for the best. You're actually there on the receiving end. You're... The downside is you're closest to uh, uh, the the people, so they can come and express their disapproval. They can sit in your office where it takes a 2,000-mile plane ride to go and sit in a congressman's office or you know, uh, an hour-and-a-half car ride to go down and sit in the governor's office. So people are closest to you, but the most rewarding uh, part of being mayor is you actually get to see how programs affect people and you can change them and make them better. Mayor Elman, what would you say would be your biggest disappointment in politics? Uh, well, it would have to be maybe a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, I did run for governor and, uh, and was very, very narrowly uh, narrowly lost to Dixie, uh, Dixie Lee Ray. Uh, that was a disappointment, although uh, it, it, it my philosophy has always been that you should not stay in any office for uh, long periods of time, and I just felt it was time to do something else. But... Um, I'd have to say, substantively, my greatest disappointment was in 1972 when we had a, a light rail package all put together, which the federal government was going to pay 80% of. Um, the voters turned it down because they were still worrying about the, the Boeing layoff and, and the economic downturn we were just coming out of. and uh, They turned it down at the polls. Uh, if we'd had it, uh, we wouldn't have the serious traffic congestion that we have today.